I am going to be a smidge more brief, but I thought I would give you guys just a general picture of YMBMB seeing as we've been talking about it for last night and this morning. Uh, this is my family, uh, as we know them right now. Yes, the dog is part of our family. Um, and this was us some 16 years ago as we went to Yembi uh, we landed a week before this picture was taken in Papua New Guinea. We moved into Yembiembi. The airstrip wasn't there. This picture was taken uh, three years after we'd been in there, so we had to build that airfield. You can kind of see it right there in the bottom. And you see the three kind of copper-roofed houses up in the top, kind of middle. Uh, the one on the far right is our house, and then our coworkers' houses are the other ones there. So we moved in, uh, started culture and language acquisition in December, of 2004. This is some of the guys from my clan. You guys remember uh, we got adopted into clan, so this is some of the men and boys from the ostrich clan. And this is my son, so he went from being an only child to having 17 brothers and 13 sisters in one day. So it was quite the family expansion plan. But this was uh, him and some of his brothers, and then we learned how to do a lot of things, becoming Yembi We talked about hunting pigs. Another thing was Paddling canoes in Yembiembi, a woman sits and a man stands, and they always have the woman at the front and the guy at the back. And 215 pound guys do not paddle canoes that well if they haven't had a lot of practice. So uh, I had many, many moons of taking swims in that river before I was able to paddle a canoe. But this was us getting around in flood season. Uh, we had a few other things that were interesting about Yembiembi. We had a ton of boa constrictors. Uh, we still have a ton of rats in the village, so the boa constrictors get attracted to the rats when you're sleeping at night. Uh, in our house, it didn't happen, but if you sleep in the Yembe's houses, the rats will come up and chew on your feet at night, and you have generally thick calluses because most everybody walks around barefoot, so they chew through the calluses till they actually reach meat, and then you kick, and then the rat goes away for a few seconds, then he comes back again. So anyways, a lot of boa constrictors. This was first literacy class. Uh, first day of literacy class, first time teaching them how to read and write in their own language. This is the all-female first literacy class, first time that you had ever had women uh, learning how to read and write. The Yembis had this idea that there's no way women can learn how to read and write. It's just not possible. And then to put the ladies through the literacy class, and some of them were pretty good, and some of them were actually better than the men. And I mean, this was just paradigm shifting for the entire uh, people group. And today, one of the women in this picture, uh, the one on the far right, is the coordinator of all the literacy programs for everyone that speaks the BCS language. She is in charge of it all. She's a widow who is an unbelievable reader. And so to see that, um, January 2008, we started the teaching that we talked about this morning, walking them from creation to Christ. And then a few months after that, we had, or a few months, about a year and a half after that, was our first baptism. And this was about the seventh guy that was baptized that day. That was a day of days. And Yembi Yembi, when you get baptized, it is a huge event. And it's not huge because it's fun and games. It's huge because usually they get down into the water and they say some version of, I am accepting the path of the bridge, man. Those of you guys that were here last night, you know what that means. And I am turning my back on the ancestor paths. And anybody who is an unbeliever there is generally infuriated by that comment. The first baptism that we had, uh, we had seven 
men, two women get baptized, and we had unbelievers just lining the shore bank with spears ready to kill them as they came out of the water. You don't get baptized easily in Yembiembi. The first lady who got baptized, when she got baptized, uh, her husband broke through the line of believers that were holding him back, and he popped her right in the face. She lost three teeth that day. Most of these guys in this picture had their gardens and their houses cut down on that day for getting baptized. Baptism costs you something deeply. And they're not as aggressive. It's not as uh, pricey as it used to be in today's baptism. But it's kind of the way baptism should be, is that this is a mark that I am taking. Because man, if you're not in, you're not getting baptized. But if you're all the way in, I believe this talk down to my bones then you get baptized. And so this was our first baptism, which was not without great pain. Uh, this is the teaching and just some of one of our guys as we were going through. We did a whole bunch of things. We talked about skits this morning. We did pictures. We did other things to help them understand. This was the day we finished the New Testament. Uh, some of you will recognize the gentleman in the far or top right. Maybe only Mike recognizes him, but that is a dear friend of mine, Jason Stewart. He was my chief translation consultant. So the final book that I finished uh, was Second Corinthians. That was a bear. And uh, just to see that day of days, what a, what a joy that was. And this is the last picture that I have. This was the last time I was in Yembiembi about a year and a half ago. I go back every year to check on the church. Last year, I was unable to go back. Uh, so 2020 was the last time I was back there. But this is the elders and the elders in training. So these are the ones who are shepherding the church there in Yembiembi and the younger ones uh, on the ground, getting ready to step into different leadership roles and to head out to other places to plant churches in the Yembiembi-speaking world and possibly beyond. So that is just a very quick overview snapshot of Yembiembi as a whole. Uh, we are going to talk tonight, and I am not going to go very long, so those of you that are hanging on by your fingernails can take great blessing from that. Uh, we're going to talk about three, or three common obstacles to the Great Commission. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to turn over to that passage we talked about this morning, Matthew 28, 16. Three common obstacles to the Great Commission. And these three obstacles, like I said this morning, I talked to a lot of college groups, a lot of Bible schools, uh, different, con or, uh, different conferences, places where people are gathering to talk about missions. And I think these three chief things are some of the hiccups that young Christians, I'm not talking about if you're an unbeliever, if you don't understand the gospel, that's a different matter. Keep coming to this church. You will hear the gospel on a regular basis. But for Christians, the three obstacles that they have generally falls somewhere within these parameters. And so number one is that we live like we have no Lord. Number one, we live like we have no Lord. So these words, remember, we talked about 18 through 20 this morning, but I want to focus a little more on verses 16 and 17 this, or this afternoon. It says this, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So I just want to stop there. The rest of the passage, everybody knows. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. It's the part that comes before that Jesus is laying out his credentials for why we should go to the ends of the earth. 
why we should do these things that are so counterintuitive, especially in 2022, to living the American dream, to staying where it's comfortable, and the police are generally good, and visas are easy to acquire, and the living conditions are pretty much where we want them to be, and we can find a climate within this country that will suit us. Why in the world would we go overseas? Why would we let our children do these things? Why would we let church members who we love dearly go to a place where they could get hurt? They could get sick. They could die. Why do we do these things? And I think the answer is found. I misspoke there. It's in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Before he asks them to do this monumental thing, he lays the bedrock. If you accept me as Lord, I have the right to call the shots in your life. I am ruler of heaven and earth. And based on that, we go. We press to places that are uncomfortable. We learn languages that will take us two, three, sometimes five years. Why? Because it's so fun learning languages? No! Because the king has requested this of us. The king has spoken. And I fear too often that Christians, especially Christian young people, get this idea that I get to do what I would like to do and I will paste Jesus' name on top of it. I'm good at music. I'm good at running a ranch. I've got a degree in English literature. Guys, I'll be honest with you. I had a massive job that I love dearly as a chief financial officer living and working in the Netherlands. I had a, I was on the track to go into retirement at 37, was making enough money as quickly as possible. Uh, my son was already subscribed. He was already enrolled. He, was, he wasn't even born yet. And we had prepaid for his first through sixth grade in the most expensive private school in San Diego, California. My wife had a Mercedes S-Class. I had a uh, cheddar cheese, Nissan Xterra. Some of you guys have seen that. I had the whole interior rubberized so that I could put my surfboards in. I could pull them out and I could hose it off. We had our dreams. I had my giftings. And yet the God of heaven, this is where the Bible broke in on my world. And if the Lord is the Lord of heaven and earth, he has the right to call you to something else. I fear too often that Christians talk about, well, my passion is, and then you do that thing and you paste Jesus' name on it. Sometimes God will call you to use your giftings. Sometimes God will call you to use the things that you're good at, that you have experience in, that you have history in, and sometimes he won't. Sometimes he's just going to call you because he has the right to call you. I get nervous, I get really nervous when young people and when adults start throwing around the language of calling. Well, I haven't gotten a missionary call yet. Join the club, join the club. When I was over in New Guinea, I was in charge of my final year, about 220, 230 missionaries. And we had an annual gathering that we always did. And we did an impromptu survey of how many people in here got a missionary call. They saw something abnormal. They heard something. They felt something. They discerned something that was out of the norm. And from that, they stepped into missions. Of the 220 that we had there, you know how many got a missionary call? Zero. Not one. Every one of them read their Bibles, 
believed what it said, had the confirmation of their local church. And based on that, they headed to the mission field. Here is my strong admonition to you. If you are 35 and younger, don't look for a missionary call. Read your Bibles, check with your church leaders, then act accordingly. Kevin DeYoung has this wonderful article uh, that he wrote. I think it's in 2018. If you Google it afterwards, you'll see it. He, uh, the title of the article is, Should We Be Looking for a Calling and Is That Even a Good Question? And what he outlines in that article is there's five passages in the New Testament where the language of calling is used. We have an upward calling in Christ. We have a calling to live as the redeemed. We have callings in other ways. We never have an occupation to pastoral ministry or to missions. And yet this idea that we're called into things, the only calling you will get typically is from the word of God. We live and we act based on who is our Lord, who is our redeemer, what has he called us to. Let's live like we are people who have a Lord, who have a Redeemer. And for many, that will be living as good senders. But for some of you, it's going to be as goers. Turn over to Luke chapter 18. So that's number one, we live like we have no Lord. And then number two, the cost is too high. The cost is too high. And if you think that missions is a cost-free endeavor, especially the type of missions that I am talking about during this weekend of taking the gospel to unreached language groups, uh, you haven't done a lot of research. Missionaries and missionaries historically have been the most costly enterprise, the most painful job occupation. We were talking in the podcast today a little bit about the life of Adoniram Judson and his two wives and his seven children that he buried in Burma and kept going. By God's grace, the school that I lead, uh, Radius International, we've had our first students that headed overseas and lost their child. And by God's good grace, they have kept on going in Indonesia. And there will be more. There is a great cost associated with following the king. And he makes that clear in his word. But this, this little vignette of where he speaks to someone that, uh, where the king speaks to someone who is dabbling with the idea, should I walk with Jesus? Should I be Jesus' disciple? Luke chapter 18, verse 18, it says this, this little story. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And the young man responds, all these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. And you got to know the context of what he's speaking here to. The other gospels tell us that this is a rich young ruler, that he's a gifted guy. And we know from this passage that he is seeking good things. Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the perfect type of guy that you build a movement around, that you want as one of your disciples. This is a seeker. And Jesus probes him a little bit and sees how he understands the law. And he doesn't understand it to the full extent, but he has the right things going for him. And Jesus is going to press in a little bit deeper to heart issues that he knew and that the young man still hadn't realized. He presses just a little bit deeper. He says this in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, the part where he says, I've done all these things. I've kept the law since I was a boy. He said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. 
And here is the common misperception of this passage. Most people think this passage is talking about money. It's not. This passage is talking about what is dearest to this young man's heart. And for him, it happened to be money. The reason we know it's not about money is because right after this passage, Peter says, we've walked away from everything. We've walked away from home, family. He lists the things that are dearest to him. But for the young man, it was money. And Jesus put his finger right on that thing that is dearest to this young man. And for him, it was those material possessions. It was the finances that he had. Jesus was essentially telling this young man, I want that. That's the thing I want you to give up. Then come be my disciple. Come be a follower of me. But you've got to take that thing that is nearest and dearest to your heart, and you have to die to that. You have to do away with that God. Because to be honest, here it is, guys. Whatever is dearest to your heart, that is the Lord of your life. And for some of you, that's Christ. For some of you, that's getting a college degree. For some of you, that's getting married. For some of you, that's having a safe future. For some of you, there are other things in your life that I don't know you well enough, but it's something that is near and dear to where if the king of kings came down and said, give me that, would you have the courage to walk away from it? Or there are other gods that are closer than even the king of kings. See, that's what the king does. He puts his finger on that thing that we love dearest. And he says, give it to me because I have something so much better for you. I have something that you can't even fathom. It's just out of this world better to walk with me, to live in life in step with me and my values. I remember when we taught this passage to the Yembies. I'm teaching it to the Yembies, and the Yembies started laughing. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I have really taught this wrong. And the Yembies started laughing. I said, all right, time out, time out, time out. Because you guys remember what the Yembies are like. They're just, they start laughing. And they said, wait, 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 wait. This guy... You've told us what a rich person in this life back then, first century in the ancient Near East, you've told us what this guy, what a rich man looked like in this time. He had like maybe some clay pots, maybe he had some white horses, maybe he had some Galilee seafront property. And then the Yembe said the line that just killed them. He didn't even have Sago. He didn't even have Sago. To the Yembe's, Sago is like life. Sago is their word for bread. It's like if... I would take translation helpers out to the coast occasionally when I would get translation checks and I would take them out for a steak dinner. Nothing like steaks in Nebraska, but it's steak. And we'd take them out for a steak dinner and they would take a bite of it and they would go, eh, it's good. If we just had sago, if we just had sago, if we'd mix it with sago, it'd be great. They'd eat ice cream. They had so many cavities that they, they would eat it right down the middle so that it wouldn't affect their cavities. Eh, it's okay. If we just had Sago. Sago was like everything to them. And so when they see this young man, they go, he didn't even have Sago. They're laughing at him because what he thought was rich, what he thought was wealth, in 2,000 years of history, it looks foolish. And here's the punchline, guys. What will they say about you someday? What will your children, what will your grandchildren, if Jesus tarries, if he doesn't come back soon, What will they say that you lived for? What will they say that you died for? What will be the story of your life? What will be that thing that was nearest and dearest to your heart? I pray that it's the Lord. I pray that it's the King.
and you were able to give up everything for the sake of being a follower of the King of Kings. Here comes the punchline, Luke 18, 23. When the rich young ruler, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Thanks, but no thanks, Jesus. I'm out. Not going to do it. Too much. Guys, here's the thing that usually holds up most people from walking into missions. The price tag is just too high. I'm not going to do that thing because there's something else that this will break that dream, break that idea. You can't get into missions if you have something else that is too dear to you because the price tag is too high. And then finally, number three. They never acted on what they knew. Turn over to Matthew chapter 25. This passage to me is probably the most terrifying passage in all of scripture. And I share it with you tonight because I want you to be equally terrified of what it could look like to give lip service to the king of kings, but in actuality, not truly understand what it means to be a follower of the king. Matthew 25, Jesus tells this story about what it will be like on that great day when he returns someday and he judges everyone for what they have done. He says this in verse 31, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Now here it is for the sheep. Listen to this part. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord. When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You didn't understand these things completely to the level that you needed to or that you Could have, but you understood the concept that if these brothers and sisters of mine, these are, he's talking about fellow saints. He's talking about those who are in prison, those who are in sick, those who need. You did these things with partial knowledge, but you did them. You acted on what you knew. You acted on what you understood. And then he flips the coin. He talks about the goats. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do, or the least of these you did not do for me. Here is the terrifying part of this passage. The goats knew who Jesus was. 
The goats knew what was expected of them. It wasn't like they were going, I'm an atheist. What are you talking about? I've never even read that passage. I've never even heard the passage. The goats were probably in Sunday school. The goats understood some aspect of the gospel. You don't get saved by what you do. That's not what I'm pushing in this passage. You never get saved by your physical actions. But we know from scripture that you judge a tree by its fruit. Those who are saved will produce fruit in accordance with salvation. And as people understand what it means to be a Christian, they walk in accordance with that knowledge. And as they understand the gospel and they don't walk in accordance with that knowledge, then we know them by their fruits. Most people who don't step into missions don't act on what they know. They act on what they hope will happen or they wait for something that usually never arrives. The difference between the sheep and the goats is what they did and didn't do based on the same information. That's the terrifying part of it. They both heard the same message. One understood and acted on it. One didn't understand and didn't act on it. And that's the difference between the sheep and the goats. Brothers and sisters, that to me is the most terrifying part of Scripture, I believe is that most of the people who will be populating some of hell will be those who sat in church, understood some of what was being said, and it didn't change the way they lived at all because they didn't understand and they didn't lay down their, their rights. They didn't understand the gospel in totality. I'm going to close with a story, and we will be done for the night. When I was in Yembe Yembe, uh, we were building our houses. And what we had to do was we had to take a long bus drive out to a riverbank. And then at the riverbank, we had the Yembe's pull up in big, long motor canoes. And the motor canoes would motor nine hours back to get to Yembe Yembe. And so we pulled up in these huge, long trucks, and I had everything that I owned on the earth, except for a few papers that were left in San Diego. Uh, but I had like our fridge, our freezer, solar panels, um, all sorts of stuff. And we were loading them into canoes. And I stuck my leg down in between two canoes on accident. And one was going one way, one was going another way. And my knee, I tore like a bunch of ligaments in it. But by then the buses had already left. And so there was nothing to be done for it. Uh, I was put into one of the canoes and my knee just starts swelling and swelling and swelling. And we're making our way down the river. We're going with the current. So everything's going pretty well. And then we make the final turn up the Salome River as we're heading to Yembe Yembe. And that's when the current's coming against us and our canoes having to go straight into the water. And we turned and we had the canoes so loaded with stuff. We had big, thick sheets of plywood, three-quarter inch plywood that was going to make up the floor of my house. And we turned. And as we turned into the water, one of the noses of one of the canoes just went straight underwater like that. And my plywood is just floating around on the river and it's starting to float down river. And so we went to the side, unloaded everybody and everything as fast as possible. And one of the free canoes went back and fished out everything that floated. Everything that didn't float went to the bottom. That was the end of that. And the MBs come back 
And they said, okay. And they're saying this through a translator because we don't know their language. So it was me and my two coworkers there. And uh, they say, okay, what's happening is the canoes are too heavy. We don't know if you guys can understand this, but the canoes are too heavy. Yeah, we understand that. And they said, what we're going to need to do is we're going to leave some of the stuff here so that we can make the canoes a little bit lighter. We're going to leave it on the side of the riverbank here. And we need to leave somebody to kind of watch over the stuff. Preferably somebody really big, somebody with something wrong with them so that they can't help as much, somebody who can't walk as well or who maybe is just going through a lot of pain right now. Somebody like that. If we can find somebody like that, we're going to be in great shape. And so (laughs) I'm going... Guys, is he talking about, no, we weren't meaning you, but if you want to do it, that'd be great. And so that was their very subtle um, way of going after it. And so I said, all right, I'll stay. And so uh, they leave me beside the riverbank. They give me some food. They give me some water. And they said, listen, around the bend, three bends up the river, there's a tribe that a couple of Yembi girls have been married into and their girls have married into the Yembi tribe. Uh, we're gonna tell them about you and probably in a couple hours when the sun gets to about right here and they pointed to a uh, spot where the sun was gonna be near a tree, uh, they said, they'll probably come back and they'll bring you some food and maybe they'll have a place for you tonight or something like that. So we will hopefully see you in two days and off they go. And that's it. And I mean, they take off And I don't know if you've ever been in a place, whether that's the Amazon or the Congo or Indonesia or wherever, but when there is no sound of any sort of machine, of any human voices, maybe you have that out here like on, I don't know, the plains when you're calving cows or I don't know, but um, it was just eerie. And the canoe goes around the bend, and it's just quiet. And I'm sitting there and my knee is just killing me. So I made this little lean-to, and sure enough, three hours later, this tribe comes down. They look after me through the night. One of the guys on the team took pity on me, and they drove all the way down through the night and picked me up in the middle of the night, got me up to MBMB. I got medevaced uh, out to our nearest base. And I remember sitting there, and I, we had written a, a letter out to our home churches, and we had told them what had happened. And I'm having just this massive pity party because we haven't even started the work. I haven't learned one word of the BC's language yet. Our house isn't even standing and my knee is just shot to pieces. I've lost a whole bunch of stuff down in the middle of the river. And I'm just thinking, what in the world have you brought me out here for, God? What am I doing here? And I remember one of my uncles, a saved uncle, a Christian, who wrote me, and he wrote me this email, and at the tail end of the email, he touches on my knee, and he says, I wish so bad I could give my knee for something like what you're doing. I wish so bad I could give my knee for something like that. Here's the punchline, guys. What will you give your knees for? What will you give your lungs for? What will you give the best years of your life for? What will you give your retirement for? What will it be like when you stand before the king of kings someday and said, I have a a body that bears the marks of malaria, of TB. I have knees that have been shattered for the sake of the king of kings. Young people, there is no greater joy than standing someday and having something to present before the king. Because someday, man, I get to stand before the king and say, here's the Yembi church. This is what I did with my knees. This is why my liver is so messed up from 12 cases of malaria. Someday, what will you give your life for? What will it be? 
Because we're all gonna give our life for something. We're all gonna live and we're all gonna die for something. Someday, stand before the King of Kings, whether you're old or whether you're young. What did you give your life for? Let me pray. Father, thank you for the grace you have given us, giving us your word in our language, of helping us understand that through teachers of your word, through shepherds. Thank you for faithful churches. Thank you for your grace to us in someone who loved us enough to share the truth with us. Father, would you give us what we need? It is, it's one of those things that we can't muster up in and of ourselves. A life well-lived does not come just through strength and discipline. It comes through your great grace. Give us all lives that reflect your value system so that when we stand before you someday, we're proud of the way that we lived. We're proud of the way that we died. We're proud of how we spent our knees, our livers, our very lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.